You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, everybody. Emily Kwong here. A curious symptom of COVID-19 that can stick with patients for a long time is loss of smell. You may remember it was around this time last year that we dropped an episode about doctors reporting loss of smell in people who later tested positive for COVID-19. Now, loss of smell is recognized as an official symptom. But researchers don't know exactly how prevalent anosmia, loss of smell, and hyposmia, partial loss of smell, is. But one European study found that 86% of patients with mild COVID cases reported losing their sense of smell. And while most recovered it, some didn't. This has given new life to a very specific treatment, smell training. It's like physical therapy, but for your nose, done regularly over weeks or maybe months. And Sarah Zhang, science reporter for The Atlantic, wanted to know more about it. How does it work? And does it actually work? One of the smell trainees she talked to is Ruby Martinez in Texas. So Sarah, let's start with stories from some of the folks you talked to who lost their sense of smell. Maybe let's start with Ruby Martinez. Um, yeah. What happened with her? Yeah, so Ruby first noticed this because she was eating a banana and she was just kind of like chewing and chewing. And she was like, huh, I don't taste anything. So she also lost her sense of taste. And then she was like, well, I don't smell anything either. Uh, and that's when she told me she kind of started freaking out. So she went to go eat some chips and, and some pickles and she still couldn't taste or smell anything. She went to smell bar perfume and like still nothing. Um, over the next few weeks, you know, strange things started to happen. You know, her smell did start to come back, but her smell is come back in really, really strange ways as well. You know, um, she told me that a lot of, um, you know, things just don't smell the way they used to. So that can be like shampoo or soap or perfume. Uh, she told me that she used to really like her boyfriend's cologne, but now it just smells like super cabinically and she like really hates it and she can't wear it anymore. Um, one of the other really strange things is that um, her she works in a doctor's office and they have to wash her hands a lot. And the hands that they have at work, it she remembers it just smelled kind of, you know, generic and, and fruity. But now she says it smells exactly like Burger King Whoppers. <laughs> That's deeply unfair. It's just unfair, right? It that, is. That and, all and these just... things that are supposed to smell enticing, like her own boyfriend's cologne, smell terrible. You know, um, there are other stories that people have had where you can smell worse things than Whoppers, right? Like garbage or sewage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people have reported that they'll try to drink some coffee and it'll just taste like garbage. And that's mm -hmm. honestly really, mm -hmm. really distressing. Wow. Okay. Um, so how did it affect Ruby? To suddenly lose her sense of smell. Yeah, I think she found it really, really strange. And it was really, you know, she she, she told me she's someone who loves to eat. Yeah. And she was hoping that, you know, in a few weeks her um, smell could back so she could go out for a birthday dinner. And she did go out for a birthday dinner, but her smell didn't come back. And she just remember was kind of like sadly eating a salad because she was saying like, well, if I can't taste anything. Might as well just eat a salad. <laughs> that is really sad. Yeah. Well, how did Ruby discover smell training first? Yeah. And how did, how did that fall into her lap? Yeah, so she ended up going to see a doctor, an uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor, um, because mm -hmm. she, this was like, you know, several weeks, I think maybe even a couple months at this point where her smell was not really coming back. So she saw a doctor uh, near her in Houston, and he introduced her to smell training. So after that appointment, her boyfriend drove her straight to Whole Foods, and they got four bottles of essential oils. And she's been uh, smell training ever since. 
And for Ruby, it seems to be working. Her smell isn't back to 100%, but it's gotten much better. So today on the show, smell training. How practicing how to smell might help those who've lost their sense of smell. And why building back that sense takes time. I'm Emily Kwong, and this is Shortwave from NPR. Okay. The history of smell training is utterly bizarre, and you wrote about it in a really interesting way. Um, Can you talk about maybe the first time in the 1980s scientists maybe accidentally stumbled upon this? Yeah, yeah. So there's a scientist um, who was studying a pig pheromone that's found in the swipe of male pigs. Uh, It's called androstenone. Mm. And this scientist, um, he actually noticed after working with this in his lab for several years that he was starting to pick up the scent of this pig pheromone that he had previously not been able to smell at all. You could tell like which bottles had the pheromone and which bottles did not. And so this suggested to him that if you were exposed to a scent that you could not smell, but you were continually exposed to it for a really long time, it's possible you can train yourself to learn how to smell it and pick it up. But it's not really until scientists uh, in like 2009 that who were studying people who could not, who had lost their sense of smell, really put this idea of smell training to like a rigorous standard really set of protocols. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying, Sarah, with the what happened in the 1980s, that was almost by accident. Yeah. Well, what changed to the point where smell training and the idea of it could be taken seriously? And and um, what did scientists figure out to standardize it as a protocol um, for people to recover their sense of smell? Yeah, yeah. So you're right, as you're saying, that smell training as we know it kind of comes out of a 2009 study. So this is a uh, a German scientist named Thomas Hummel. He and his colleagues recruited 40 people who lost their sense of smell, either because of some kind of viral infection or because of a head injury. And basically gave them a very standardized, like day-by-day uh protocol about what to do. This is basically okay. actually what Ruby was doing. This is like the almost the exact same protocol. Oh. Um, this is the this is the original. This is the Yeah, this is this is the OG protocol. Okay. You take uh, four essential oils. The classic ones are rose, lemon, eucalyptus, and clove. Okay. And the idea is that these four smells like kind of cover like the the range of possible smells and that they're piney and fruity and floral. Mm. Um, so, you know, you're not picking like lemon and lime, which obviously are like very similar to each other. These are pick mm-hmm. four that are you know pretty different from each other uh, or different mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. So um, the volunteers were asked to do this over a course of 12 weeks. And for twice a day, they would sniff these oils for 10 seconds each. Okay. Scientists use something called sniffing sticks. And it's literally just like pens that have like a standardized amount of smell in them. And you would wave them under someone's nose and see like whether they can detect it or not. Interesting. So, okay. So Hummel and his fellow researchers, they invited the study participants to do this regimen. And then waving the sniff and stick under their nose, they could figure out over time if their sense of smell improved based on whether they were able to smell the sniff and stick. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, and it seems to work at different paces for different people. So it's not Mm. like a a miracle drug. Right. It's Mm. a very slow, very incremental process. And it can be really frustrating day to day because 
you know, from day one to day two, you're probably not going to notice a difference. So you might not even notice a difference from day one to day seven. It really could take three or four months. Yeah. Um, and Hummel and his colleagues also, you know, tried to optimize this protocol. Would it be better if we added more scents or more complex scents? So, you know, the essential oils are obviously just like one smell. What if you added like complex smells or combinations of smells what if you switched out the scents after two months so you did more smells or what if you had people look at a picture of what they were seeing when they were smelling none of these really seem to make the smell training any more effective it seems like at the end of the day you just have to take the time to sniff these scents every day every period of many weeks smell training is just so fascinating to me because what i'm hearing you say is that sniffing these four essential oils, rose, lemon, eucalyptus, and clove, would rebuild your ability to smell things that aren't those scents. So how does learning how to smell other scents give you the ability to smell all scents? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. So um, let's let's think a little bit about how smell works, right? Okay. Humans have about 400 distinct smell receptors, yep. but we're able to distinguish between more than 400 smells, right? Like I think the current estimate is that humans can actually distinguish between like a trillion different smells. So, um, <gasps> you know, when you're smelling like these four essential oils, you're not just stimulating four receptor neurons, you're probably stimulating olfactory sensory neurons that are all across your olfactory system. Mm. So I think that that may be explaining why like adding more smells doesn't necessarily um, seem to speed up smell training yeah. because it's not like a one-to-one relationship between a smell and a receptor and a neuron. Um, there's actually a lot of you know overlap and, and redundancies in the whole system as well. That's so interesting. It also just sounds very mysterious to me. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> like, agree. It works, but we don't <laughs> quite know how? Yeah. One way to think about smells like is it's like bottom-up process. It's like molecule goes to your nose and it gets fed up to your factory bulb and to your brain. But smell and like actually all of our senses is also very much a top-down process, right? Like we smell things um, based on whether we pay attention to them, right? That, that's what, um, if you work in a factory or an office or even your house, you kind of don't really smell your house after a while, right? We stop paying attention yeah. to that. Or maybe you are really attuned to trying to smell a certain thing. Like if you're a smellier, you're always smelling wines all the time. Um, you're really paying attention to what's in a wine. Um, that can also really influence your sense of smell. So smell is in some ways also kind of subjective. It's not just receiving signals from the world. It's also your brain like deciding what to pay attention to. So with smell training being something that people are talking about more and practicing at home, what is the outlook for Ruby um, and for others who are in the process of recovering their sense of smell or maybe haven't been able to recover their sense of smell at all? Um, What is their future like? And how does yeah. that training play into it? Yeah, so smell training definitely does seem to help a lot of people, but it helps different people to different degrees and you know at different paces. And everybody kind of recovers from smell loss a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about COVID is that there's been so many people that um, uh, people are finding themselves online. Right. And I think... Uh, losing your sense of smell can be very isolating because obviously no one can tell you've lost it. You just have to tell people about these weird sensory experiences you're having. But being able to talk to other people who've gone through the same thing, I think, has been really helpful for a lot of people. That was Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. 
We've put a link to her full story on Shortwave's page, which you can find at npr.org. This episode was produced by Thomas Liu, edited by Thomas Liu and Giselle Grayson, and backtracked by Rasha Aridi. The audio engineer for this episode was Leo Del Alguila. I'm Emily Kwong, and this is Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about movies, music, and more. Like why The Great Pottery Throwdown is a comforting binge watch. And a look back at some of Chadwick Boseman's essential performances. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.